man, Al, Chris Claremont really did have his uh, special interests, didn't he? That he did, Miles. Like women's bodies transforming in various and assorted ways. I'm not sure whether to be more impressed by the time Jean Grey got tentacle arms or the time Callisto got tentacle arms or the time Rachel Summers got te- no, uh, turned into a dinosaur. Yup, but if I had to pick what seemed to be Claremont's favorite uh, trope, I'd have to say it's probably mind control. Definitely. And even with that, we should probably disambiguate, otherwise we're just describing most stories in his 17-year run. True, true. Uh, Okay, let's focus on possession. That seems to be a go-to. Right, you've got Shadow King possessing Karma and half of Muir Island. You've got the Phoenix Force, kind of sort of possessing Jean Grey. You've got Malice possessing Polaris and Dazzler and everyone with the neck space to wear her possession choker. Those are probably the big ones, yeah. But did Kitty Pride ever get possessed? She was one of Claremont's favorite characters, so it must have happened once or twice, right? Very early on, in fact. Her mind was taken over by Ogun, Wolverine's old ninja mentor, when she went to Japan to try to protect her dad from the Yakuza. Right, and eventually Wolverine helped Kitty learn martial arts to break free and they killed Ogun. You know, that's kind of a shame. I mean, he may have been a creepy jerk, but he was a cool villain. Or at least had a cool demon mask. Well, I've got ambivalent news for you then, because Oaken absolutely came back from the dead. Great, I think. I assume he possessed more people. That kind of seems to be his deal. Definitely. After his big defeat, he started small with a couple of museum guards... Fair. I mean, sometimes you have to take it slow to get back into the game. Mm, It turned out to be a bad idea, though, because Wolverine and Ghost Rider made short work of him in those bodies. So what? Did he upgrade? Did he possess some old Jack Kirby monsters or something? No, as much as I would love to see Fin Fang Foom in a demon mask, the next time he showed up, he actually possessed Lady Deathstrike and the Danger Room itself, and most dangerously of all... Fin Fang Foom in a demon mask? Even worse, a mime. What? I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Miles Kennedy, filling in for J. Edson while he's on parental leave. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 403 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the wide world of 90s miniseries, once again. Kitty Pride did much better in this period than most other characters for getting her own miniseries, didn't she? So she was in the Pride and Wisdom mini. She's in the, the True Friends mini, I think, isn't she? She's in the Liberators mini. She's in all sorts of stuff. She's all over the place. I think this is the first time we've ever had a Kitty-specific miniseries, as much as it's a Kitty-specific miniseries when Wolverine is motorcycling around in the background all the time. (laughs) Kitty Pride is one of those characters who is completely inextricably linked with the X-Men. She is one of the absolute ground-level characters of the franchise by this point. 
which is odd to think because she wasn't one of the original members. She wasn't even one of the all new all different members. It's probably worth taking a little time to recap who she actually is. Yes, indeed. So Catherine Kitty Pride is a girl from Illinois with a mutant power to walk through walls. She's had many superhero names, from Sprite to Ariel to Shadowcat. And she's had a lot of costumes as well. She had the standard X-Men black and yellow when she debuted, and she had this kind of classy swashbuckling blue. And then there was that impressively unfortunate time that she designed her own costume out of gold lame, roller skates, and clashing neon. That was amazing. I have seen some astonishing cosplay of that, including by some close friends of mine. It's so good. I can imagine. What a costume it is. So after spending years as the youngest X-Man, since the Dark Phoenix saga, Kitty helped found the European mostly mutant team Excalibur, and she's remained there for over 100 issues. And a lot has stayed the same for her during that time. She's still this precocious young genius who's got a knack for computers and a best friend who's a small purple dragon from space. Every girl needs one. And she's still quite the hand-to-hand combatant, thanks to the aforementioned trip to Japan and martial arts training by Wolverine. These days, she's ambiguously older, let's say, and she's dating a surly former spy named Pete Wisdom while living with the rest of the team at a research lab on Muir Island off the coast of Scotland. And that's where we start going into Kitty Pride, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. number one, The Calling. Written by Larry Hama, penciled by Jesus Redondo, inked by Sergio Melia, colored by Glennis Oliver, lettered by Jim Novak, and it is the same creative team each time, so we only have to say that once. And it also means the miniseries feels very consistent. It really does. It, it sits together as a very neat package. Even though it's a, a bit disjointed as a story, as we'll get into, it feels like you can consume the whole thing in one sitting quite easily. Mm-hmm. Which I think She's is a, is a, a good thing for a mini. It always bugs me when you have a miniseries with a bunch of different creators. Like, I, w- I just feel like a miniseries should be better planned. It's a unit. It is a unit of comic and should be created as such. But, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. I get it. This time it does. I'm not going to say it's the best miniseries in the world, but it's definitely got that going for it. And Larry Hama dialogue. It has Larry Hama dialogue going for it. The dialogue in this is amazing. We will come on to a lot of it as we go. So we'll start with the first thing anyone would see, the cover. It's a picture of Kitty Pride in a S.H.I.E.L.D. uniform, albeit a more restrained S.H.I.E.L.D. uniform, not the one just covered in pouches and pouches and pouches, in front of the S.H.I.E.L.D. logo, with the caption, Kitty's being all that she can be. She's leaving Excalibur for a whole new life. Or at least for three issues, anyway. But she doesn't start there. She starts, of course, at home on Muir Island, where Excalibur lives, where she and her boyfriend Pete Wisdom are doing their usual flirt fighting on the dramatic cliffside. But they are saved by the bell. I mean, helicopter. Bellicopter? Anyway, there's a shield helicopter, (laughs) and it shrooms into sight. Does it seem weird to you that they don't notice it until it's, like, six feet away? It is a bit weird. I mean, it's massive. It's this huge helicopter thing which comes hurtling in from out of nowhere. And I wonder if it's like that thing where, you know, you know how Donald Trump thought that spy planes, you couldn't actually see them? Like stealth fighters, they were literally invisible, like in Die Another Day. I wonder if it's a bit like that cloaking device style. 
it's either that or it's got a hyperdrive and it's just sort of zooped into place like right near Mirror Island, which seems very dangerous. But I guess if you have a really good astrogation droid, you could probably make it work. Yeah, absolutely. And probably some kind of silent running thing going on as well. Maybe they just turned the engine off and just coasted the last little bit. Oh, it's like a giant Wappa Wappa glider. So this is weird because Kitty is surprised here, not just because a helicopter apparently teleported into sight, but she shouldn't be surprised. We saw in Excalibur number 115 that Moira McTaggart took a call from S.H.I.E.L.D., which she then passed along to Kitty, letting Kitty know that S.H.I.E.L.D. needed her help with something. So definitely an inconsistency here, but honestly, as 90s inconsistencies go, it's pretty minor. I vote we don't worry about it. Yeah, it does mean that there's a no prize available for anyone that can work out how to resolve that. And my vote goes for S.H.I.E.L.D. got her to do something, brought her back before this issue. And then when they were about halfway out, they realized, oh, shoot, we need her to do this thing with the computers as well. Turned around and came back again, which also explains why Kitty is very nonplussed to see them. You know, there is precedent because Banshee just did the exact same thing. He showed up on Muir Island in Generation X, and then when he was halfway back to the States, he got called back to Muir Island in an Excalibur story. Exactly. So people just can't leave Muir Island. They just go, oh, I've forgotten my stuff. I have to go back again. People leave their keys or their their glasses or whatever. They just have to keep returning. I always think about Babylon 5, a show that I dearly love, where no character was ever allowed to leave a room without being interrupted by the person they'd been talking to and having to turn around to have a little bit more conversation, like every single time. (laughs) That's very true. That's probably one of my, one of the best things about Babylon 5. I think the very best thing about Babylon 5, a show which I also dearly love, is the fact that at one point Michael Garibaldi mentions that he has frictionless bed sheets, which means he would get into bed, slide directly across and land on the other side of the bed on the floor and just keep going backwards and forwards all night. I mean, it would make for an exciting sex life, just not necessarily exciting in the way that anyone was looking for. No, indeed. Anyway, so S.H.I.E.L.D. have turned up to try and get Kitty to do something. S.H.I.E.L.D., as we know, stands for Strategic Hazard Intervention Espionage Logistics Directorate. As the ubiquitous captions tell us every single time they appear. Now, that's distinct from the movies where they are Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division, which I guess sort of fits modern history better. What with the Homeland thing? I don't know. To me, they'll always be the Supreme Headquarters International Espionage and Law Enforcement Division, uh, as Stan intended. Ah, Stan Lee, a true bastion of continuity consistency. You can just ask Bob Banner. Currently, S.H.I.E.L.D. is led by the one and only G.W. Bridge, George Washington Bridge, noted goatee haver and jerk beer with a history with Cable. And I love the way Bridge just, like, steps off the helicopter and makes a great first impression here. Which one of you miserable mutants is Catherine Pride? OGW, you're great at cocktail parties. Uh, That polite intro means that Colossus is pretty mad, like, uncharacteristically so. He's kind of hot-headed and very defensive here. Uh, GW Bridge has his own delightful take on Piotr. Who is this obstreperous fellow? Obstreperous. I remember that word from my middle school vocab book. It means noisy and difficult to control. I So we've talked about Larry Hama many times on this show. Um, his plots tend to be pretty bonkers, and his dialogue tends to be 
also pretty bonkers. Like, it's one of those things where you'll sometimes disparagingly say about a show or a book or whatever, oh, people don't talk that way. And like with Larry Hama dialogue, people don't talk that way, but like, I wish they did. Yeah, dialogue from Larry Hama world is dialogue from a better world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the reason S.H.I.E.L.D. has shown up to confront these obstreperous, miserable mutants is that they're having an IT problem. The helicarrier computer system, the helicarrier, of course, being their giant floating aircraft carrier base that never, ever, ever crashes, ever, uh, it stopped responding. And apparently it has stated in some fashion that it will only respond to Kitty Pride specifically. Um, because she's got the magic touch because she's an expert programmer and hacker, right? Uh, no, no, it's just that it wants her handprint and retina scan and stuff. So if I have a fundamental complaint about this miniseries, it's probably that. Like, yes, there's going to be a plot reason that Kitty's being lured onto the helicarrier, of course. And I guess this is a good way to lure her onto the helicarrier. But it has been consistent near since nearly the start of kitty pride's appearance in x-men that she is like you said she's a great hacker she's a great programmer she's very technically apt one of my favorite pieces of kitty art is her half phase through a circuit board that she is uh that she's soldering it's like from the back cover of i think a classic x-men issue or maybe excalibur uh it's alan davis anyway and that really barely comes up here it's just weird it's like in resident evil revelations 2 my favorite resident evil game where claire redfield is really awkward with kids despite the fact that her main personality trait from resident evil 2 her previous appearance is being great with kids it's like do you not know anything about the character like the central thing about the character yeah well one thing that is known is that pete wisdom is an extremely defensive guy who doesn't let his team uh get into danger if he can possibly avoid it he carries a lot of guilt around with him and he is not at all up for kitty going off and doing shield shenanigans on his watch hold on mate kitty's not going to get herself embroiled in the nefarious doings of nasty transom peekers envelopes steamers and door kickers shield is an international ring of overarmed control freaks who are suffering from a deficiency in childhood toilet training Every single one of the things that Pete Wisdom says there sounds like he's describing a different, highly specific type of Victorian era petty criminal. Oh, yeah, this guy was sent to prison for, uh, he went down for four months for transom peaking. And uh, this bloke here, he was um, barred from this pub because he was an envelope steamer. <laughs> it's like the different character classes you can choose in a Victorian petty crime role playing game. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure I was a door kicker in a game of Troika once. <laughs> now, this is good Larry Hama dialogue, but I do want to highlight some of my favorite Larry Hama dialogue from my folder of Larry Hama dialogue bits. It's all Wolverine that I have, but it's all just so good. Larry Hama's Wolverine is one of the greatest creations in history, and it's because of things like this. No more jinking and jiving. This is where we open a six-pack of butt kick and put it in their face. And? Time to turn up the thrash-o-meter and go to Throwdown City. I mean, just fantastic stuff. 
Right? I uh, I like to think that this is not how Logan talks only when he is about to enter an action scene. This is just how he talks literally all the time. It's like how some <laughs> people don't have an inside voice. He doesn't have a not Larry Hama voice. <laughs> well, Kitty is equally furious as Wolverine is in those dialogue samples because she thinks that Wisdom is treating her like a kid and making her decisions for her. So she kind of steps to him. You don't know what you're getting into. Maybe, but I know what I'm getting out of. And off she storms into her own miniseries. So, I don't know, what do we think about this? Like, we've certainly seen some tension in Kitty and Pete's relationship, but is this level of tension, is this consistent with where Excalibur's been recently? It's, I think it's kind of consistent with Pete Wisdom, definitely, because... He is, as I say, you know, he's somebody who has massive guilt issues that he carries with him about his former teammates and everyone that he has seen killed under his watch because it turns out that actually hanging around with Pete Wisdom is something that carries a very short life expectancy. And so I kind of would get that he would be very protective towards Kitty. From Kitty's perspective, I mean, she's been doing this for so long she knows what she's doing. She knows what she's getting into. But it is a little bit weird that having just been ambiguously aged up so that dating Pete Wisdom isn't icky, he is very much treating her like a kid. And in this miniseries, she definitely comes off as a young character. Uh, that's been the case in Ben Robb's Excalibur, largely through her dialogue. He writes her like a teenager. And here we just see her as not being inexperienced exactly, but being less overall competent and confident than I would expect Kitty to be after, like you said, being a superhero since she was basically a kid. It's a bit strange, but I mean, it, it gets her off the island, I guess, and it, it kind of resolves why it's just her going along. You know, she's there saying like, I can do this. The rest of you just stay here. I know what I'm doing. And she has to prove a point effectively. Yeah. And off she goes to prove that point. She goes to a GOP, as opposed to GAP, jeans outlet. And yes, she does make a joke about Republicans with orders to bring a pair of jeans into a specific fitting room. And, you know, she can't help but have fun with the clerk over all of this, like, secretive spy stuff saying, Am I supposed to know a secret handshake or something? Nod, nod, wink, wink. She's a Monty Python fan. It seems oddly unsurprising. Yeah, yeah, that would be Kitty. Her and Doug both. But she's not impressed the clerk with this carry-on. If you do anything weird in there, I'm calling the police. She's just weird. Yup, yup. I, I appreciate when writers remember that. Like, Kitty is, she's, you know, an audience surrogate in some ways. Yes, she was always one of Claremont's favorites. But she's also just kind of like a dorky weirdo in really endearing ways. Yeah, I kind of figure that Kitty was always going to be the one in the X-Mansion who was um, the permanent DM for their Dungeons and Dragons games. Yeah, yeah, her or, or Doug. Her and Doug were just so similar in so many ways. I miss them having time together. I mean, they're both on Excalibur these days, kind of, in that Doug Locke has based on Doug, kind of. But I like the two of them. I'd love to see more of them in the Krakoa era, just hanging out. Yeah, it'd be fantastic, particularly that we've got actual Doug back. Although, 
I think Kate Pride in her Marauders aspect is a bit more of a serious minded person and or at the very least wants to be seen as more of a serious minded person. I mean, I say that, but she is constantly wearing this massive Captain Harlot cosplay jacket. So who knows? <laughs> I would wear the hell out of that jacket. One fitting room that's really an elevator, ride later, she is on the deck of the Helicarrier, and here she meets some more of the Shield Brass, Dum Dum Dugan, noted mustache-haver, and Contessa Valentina, who's getting to be a big deal in the MCU. And in fact, she uses her biometrics, her handprint, her voice, her image to unlock the computer, and disable one of the most uh visible or i should say audible symptoms of the helicarrier having been compromised which is apparently that it's been blaring music on the loudspeakers for days which amused the hell out of me when i read it because i'm in a star wars role-playing game i'm sure that's not a surprise to most people listening to this show uh and we just hijacked a smuggling ship and that we didn't speak the language uh, that the computers had been programmed in, and that was, in fact, exactly what we dealt with. There was Gamorrean opera playing really, really loud, distracting us and penalizing all of our roles. So um, I, I guess it has precedent in this specific Kitty Pride Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. miniseries. Well, Kitty, having solved this problem for them, this is like this is her first trial. You know, she has to solve various things for them. If this had been the only thing, it's like you, you called me in here because you couldn't work out how to turn down the stereo, then this would be a very short miniseries. But luckily, there's more hijinks with computers to come. But it's okay because she's impressed a young guy called Rigby Fallon, who is an AI intern. He's a bit like if Doug Ramsey was a bit more muscular and a little bit more baby-faced. But the S.H.I.E.L.D. brass are not impressed. They promptly ignore Kitty, who's thinking like, wait, is this all you wanted? Dum Dum Dugan apparently has gone to the GW Bridge school of being kind to people who you need help from. Uh, the way he talks to her is quite the thing. Back off, little girl! A lonely intern don't give no lip to a special director! No, you've, you've already got a lip, Dum Dum Dugan. Your, your mustache is on it. That's, that's where it lives maybe he doesn't have a lip maybe that he's got no lip so that's why he doesn't give he, maybe she should give him a lip that's what he's crying out for here right so his mustache is just like hanging from his nose just blocking off this 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 void this this little slice of oblivion exactly it just links to a black hole on the other side of the universe this is the the thing that we never quite got to see in Jonathan hickman's secret warriors oh man uh, Jonathan Hickman, if you're still listening, um, there's still time. I don't know what your next mystery project is after X-Men, but I assume it's exactly what we're talking about right here. Kitty can't even quit this because she signed up, as it turns out, for an open-ended internship, um, which basically means you will stay here until we let you go. And they say that if she does go, she'll be a deserter and they'll catch her and throw her in the brig or like put her in front of a firing squad or something. The main thing I'm learning about S.H.I.E.L.D. from this miniseries is that they're terrible in every way. Oh, they're awful. They're just a bunch of terrible human beings. I mean, Rigby, I guess, is nice. He's a little kind of golly gee whiz, but he shows her around, shows her the computers. Look, even the Vector Intersect program is up and running again. That must be very nice for the Vectors. 
like two thirds of what I'm enjoying about this miniseries is the dialogue. The plot is, you know, fine, but I just, I just love it when people talk like they're Larry Hama characters because they're Larry Hama characters. Absolutely. Rigby's analysis programs find the initial root of the problem, the reason everyone was locked out and had to have Kitty let them back into the system. And the root of the problem is, in fact, a guy in a devil mask and a martial arts uniform on the screen, and then off the screen because he's turned into a hologram. And he can do this despite there being no obvious method of projection, because as we've established via shard over at X-Factor, in the Marvel Universe, the word hologram is a synonym for magic spell it's like magnetism it can do literally anything so yes if you are thinking this is in fact the guy from the cold open ogun it very much is he's wolverine's old mentor he tried to take over kitty and turn her evil and possess her in the kitty pride and wolverine miniseries back in the 80s uh he did just show up and possess kitty again in excalibur number 111 which is kind of weird that Kitty doesn't think to mention that here, and is surprised he's still alive. Another inconsistency, but again, eh, it's the 90s. And he villain-splains, as villains often do, that the reason he's been able to possess the helicarrier itself is that now he has a little bit of a taste for possessing machinery stuff after possessing Lady Deathstrike, the cyborg, back in the Wolverine series, also by Larry Hama, not very long ago. Yeah, and he was he possessed the danger room, he's now possessing the helicarrier itself. He is enjoying the, the benefits of the, the technological bodies. He's a ghost in the machine, as it were. Excellent pun work. Thank you, thank you. He starts the helicarrier careening through New York City to just show off what a good techno ghost he is. And then it gets weird. He transforms his ghost ninja hologram into a ghost ninja hologram of kitty pride and then gives logan wolverine a video call and asks logan to meet her him her on the brooklyn bridge and to wear his costume that is a weird fucking request and logan just says k like he does say to himself later that he wouldn't do this for anybody but kitty but you'd think he would just be like all right you're saying some weird stuff what's up are you possessed again it's particularly odd because although it appears to be a video call, Logan can't see the fact that there are two Kitty Prides standing there. And Logan and Kitty are both using phone handsets, which kind of suggests that it's not a video call, which makes me think that it's only a video call from the shield end. So potentially Logan doesn't know it's a video call, which makes me think that shield have bugged the X-Mansion and they're just filming people taking phone calls all the time? That does sound like something S.H.I.E.L.D. would do, to be fair. Like, all right, welcome, new S.H.I.E.L.D. intern. If your job isn't to turn off the weird opera with your handprint, then your job is just to watch these people talking on the phone. Don't worry, it's the X-Men. They don't actually call each other very often, even when they should. Yeah, and Kitty is really, really hacked off with Ogun for this and decides to launch herself at him full force and that passes for a cliffhanger at the end of issue one of Kitty Pride Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. It takes us into Kitty Pride Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. issue two, The Mission, which starts exactly where the last one left off with Kitty trying to punch a hologram somehow. Rigby, on the other hand, is 
a little bit more savvy as to what they're going to need to do. He's convinced that they'll need to write Ogun out of the Halo Carrier system code line by line. No, dude, just do pseudo RM-RF star Ogun star. It'll it'll be fine. There's only like a 50% chance that you'll delete a bunch of stuff you didn't intend to. <laughs> so Ogun sends the Halo Carrier into a dive towards the East River. Um, and he's locked everyone else out of the the computer's navigation, out of the steering. Basically, they're on a runaway ship at this point. And as the ship runs away, everyone is jostled about like the Enterprise just got hit with a photon torpedo. Uh, and Rigby falls onto Kitty's backpack, which is just sort of on the ground. At which point Lockheed, the purple dragon from space who's been missing an Excalibur for a while, comes jumping out in a tangle of lacy pink undergarments, which, okay, okay, that's that's genuinely funny. It kind of raises the question as to how on earth Lockheed got there. Because the last time we saw Lockheed, Lockheed was being manhandled, or I guess dragon handled, around in the service tunnels under Muir Island by a bunch of giggling goblin-y things. And he somehow has managed to get out from that. Like, I presume that there is a a classic X-Men story to be added in. There's a little retcon implant, which just shows Lockheed slaughtering hundreds of these things. Oh God, the blood, the blood. Yeah. Unfortunately, he's not much help because they don't really need a dragon at this point. It's nice to see him back, but um, Kitty's having other problems, including that her handprint no longer works to take control back of the ship. Um, Kitty, I'm I'm no expert, but maybe you should take off your your glove. You you didn't do that in that panel. Maybe that would help. We then see Wolverine, who is plowing along on his motorbike. It's always fun to see Wolverine on his motorbike. Like it is one of those absolutely archetypal things that uh, Wolverine should always be doing. One is wearing a cowboy hat, and uh, two is riding a motorbike. And mm-hmm. you know, possibly three would be opening a, a can of beer with a claw yeah no that that's how you tell it's really logan and not like mystique or i guess ogun he has to do those three things within the first 20 minutes of hanging out with him at any given point so he's in his costume as requested he's on his motorcycle as not requested but as obligatory and he drives up the cables of the brooklyn bridge because he sees that the helicarrier is headed towards the river and jumps onto the helicarrier with a bonk. I love that an annoyed taxi driver on the bridge tells him to signal when he passes. It's such a New York thing. <laughs> I can just imagine that. Like, he's just shaking his fist at him, and then Wolverine's like, Hey, I'm Wolverine here! <laughs> yup. So, if this seems familiar, listeners, it should. It's even mentioned that this happened before, because back in Wolverine number 50, one of the few issues of Wolverine this podcast has covered, uh, Wolverine did indeed jump his ubiquitous motorcycle through the air and crash through the front windows into the bridge of the helicarrier. So this is just, like, how he gets on the helicarrier? I, I don't know if he knows of any other ways. I think it would have been better if he had crashed his motorbike into bridge, like, into GW Bridge. <laughs> served him right. That jerk, what with his goatee and his being mean to Kitty. And I, he's a pretty beefy dude. I'm pretty sure it wouldn't even hurt him. No, I just bounce off. 
Katie, meanwhile, has phased into the mainframe room to manually override things. But Ogun is there. He's blocking her way. And now he's solid and dripping green, as he says himself. Tis the ectoplasmic manifestation of an undead revenant. I give up. I can't not hear that in my Bobby's voice. Oi, Gavalt. Now I'm picturing my Bobby, which is a Yiddish term for grandmother, uh, wearing that, like, standard shield outfit. And, you know, she looks all right. Well done, Bobby. <laughs> well, Kitty phases through Ogun anyway, despite Ogun warning of... The unrelenting chill of the grave. The dark, profoundly silenced gelidity of eternity. Larry Hammer, come and get your award. This is amazing stuff. Oh, I love it. <laughs> she lunges through him and manages to hit an off switch. I mean, there was plenty of room to go around him, I should say. Like, she didn't have to go through him at all. Kitty just likes going through stuff, I think. But she manages to reset the system and prevent the helicarrier from crashing into a tour boat. And the emergency is briefly... Uh, avoided and rigby is just about to give kitty a celebratory kiss when logan crashes his motorcycle through the wall like the world's most intense prom chaperone him sitting on this bike this whole time is like one of those action figures that's welded to the vehicle accessory and if you ever do manage to get the figure off they're still in this kind of cowboy pose because that's the way the legs are shaped <laughs> exactly and shields are quite happy with wolverine tootling around on their helicarrier on his motorbike he gets uh quite a bit of leeway bought for him because logan as he says himself did some sneaky peaky stuff for the puzzle palace honchos in the bad old days of the cold war and they pin an id card onto his yellow spandex which like i'm pretty sure they know who you are mate He's a pretty distinctive looking guy. It's 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 true. It's true. It's oh, it's so good. This series, I mean, okay, listeners, I don't want to oversell it. I'm not gonna say it's necessarily all that great, but it's just so goofy and fun so often. It is it is extremely daft and it takes itself about as seriously as it should do. And Larry Hammond knows that as he's going through this. He's like, I don't have to write Watchmen here. What I need to write is three issues of Wolverine and Kitty Pride run around on a helicarrier and stop things from exploding. <laughs> or in one exactly. case, cause things to explode, but they will come off. <laughs> Kitty actually manages to get out of this room by uh, reaching through the door and sliding back a manual bolt, which... I mean, it's charmingly rustic for a high-tech flying fortress. I guess it makes the door unhackable. I don't know. It's true. It's true. And as she's doing this, uh, Logan mentions to Kitty, like, oh, yeah, Ogun's definitely back from the dead. I, I fought him a couple times, you know, back in number 89 and 111 through 114 of my own series. Does this seem weird? Like, Ogun possessed Kitty Pride and, you know, really messed her up. Like, that must have been an incredibly traumatic experience back in the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries. I feel like he would have at least mentioned to Kitty that this demon ghost ninja guy was back from the dead and maybe she should keep an eye out or something. 
like I know this is a relatively featherweight miniseries. It doesn't tie into continuity very much at all, but I don't know. That's actually something I appreciate weirdly about this era of Excalibur, which while not all that great overall, does always remember continuity stuff like that. And I kind of wish that this series did, especially since it's calling back to the Kitty Pride and Wolverine series so much, you know? Yeah, I wonder if part of it is because, I mean, he says that he hoped that Ogun would have forgotten Kitty. So he maybe is trying to spare her the worry. It's a little patronizing on his part. It doesn't feel like a Wolverine thing to do. Like, I think Wolverine would would give people a heads up, but not expect them to do anything about it. Like, I think he would, you know, he would leave a little note saying, Ogun's back. It's okay. I'm on it. Love, L. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially because, like, I've read uh, all of Larry Hama's Wolverine, I think, anyway, and he spends a lot of time with Jubilee in that, and he always is very upfront with her. Like, that is always how he handles things with her. And so I know that Larry Hama hasn't really written much in the way of Kitty Pride in the past, but you'd think there would be some some overlap there. Yeah, it's a bit strange, but I guess if you're Wolverine and you have to deal with the number of returning from the dead villains that Wolverine has to deal with on a, I would say, probably weekly basis, then in order to stop your life just becoming admin, then you have to pick and choose who you alert whenever a bad guy comes back. I feel like Logan needs an administrative assistant. I think that'd be great. I mean, that's what you could get Jubilee or Cannonball or any of those other people who acted as a sidekick to do. Just hang around, act as a stenographer, manage the diary, do all the, I guess Wolverine probably would have them doing faxes. Faxes were a big deal back in the 90s. We covered that in a very recent cold open. (laughs) So whilst this is all going on, Dum Dum wants Rigby to do a scan and to purge Ogun from the system. Um, Ogun seemed to think that this was mathematically impossible. I think we can't underestimate the possibility that this is because Ogun is an old person who doesn't understand computers. He's just sitting there trying to type the word Google into a Word document and wondering why it isn't working, and he just calls his grandson. (laughs) Exactly, that's pretty much it. So as this is happening, Logan notices the fact that Kitty and Rigby have got a bit of an kind of an atmosphere between them and so he decides to give kitty a bit of surrogate fatherly advice you go with what your heart tells you to do and you might roll into a mess of pain but years down the pike you won't regret it i wonder if she still thinks about lord alistair kinross from that obscure x-men true friends miniseries who apparently is kitty's true love which chris claremont reminds us of almost every time he brings kitty back in a in a story he gets to write Alastair Kinross, right? His first name is spelled A-L-A-S-T-H-A-I-R. Now, I thought I had seen all the ways to spell my first name, but that is one to add to the collection. That's a new one on me. Thank you, Chris. It's here for the taking. (laughs) And it turns out that, unfortunately, Ogun can't just possess computers. He can also possess nerds. So it's time to take over Rigby. And that takes us careening into Kitty Pride Agent of Shield number three, Pride Goeth Before the Fall. And Pride is spelled as you as you would expect. Uh on the cover, we are asked the eternal question. Can a sweet young girl from Illinois defeat a corrupt evil spirit from the pit of Hades? 
It reminds me of those overly specific t-shirts, like the, the, the don't mess with moms who love corgis and were born in July shirts or whatever. I'm taken by a bald professor who lives in Westchester County. That kind of thing. <laughs> yes. Uh, so Rigby, possessed Rigby, is all sexy and smooth at Kitty, saying, It's futile to resist it, Kitty. There's some magic electricity between us that is as unstoppable as the tides. Magic, electricity, tides. Well, that is way too many types for one Pokemon. Uh, but their almost kiss is interrupted by the fact that the elevator that they were on as they were being all flirty was apparently like still going up and then just pops up on the deck of the helicarrier and all of these agents are just staring at them and, and smiling. And it it would be kind of funnier if Kitty wasn't being deceived by a ghost trying to kiss her who was like way older and 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 a jerk but uh regardless it doesn't take ogan too long to cut that tension by revealing his slimy green self i think he's very proud of that green face like he's just grinning maniacally every time he shows up and he doesn't wear the mask very much he's just like look at my green face yeah and the mask seems like overkill frankly if you've got the face that he's got i mean he's already got this monstrous visage why he would need the mask, I really don't know. I mean, I think he's probably doing that kind of Marvel Cinematic Universe thing where he's like, I'll wear the mask for a little bit, but people want to see the goods. This is what they came for. <laughs> they want to see the beautiful face of Ogun dripping in green ectoplasm. I would say I wonder who would play Ogun in, in the movies, but wait, was he in the, the Wolverine? Like the, the second Wolverine movie? I don't remember if it was him or a different ninja lord i don't ninja remember lords. i've only ever seen that movie once i have to say i remember it being basically 75 percent like logan is an honorable man in a dishonorable world and then 25 percent oh and he's gonna fight voltron <laughs> yup yeah that was a hell of a take on the silver samurai Oh man, what a film! Uh, I, I actually do quite enjoy um, that that movie. Uh, that all of the Wolverine movies have their their varying and extremely different charms. Logan tries slashing at Rigby. Oh right, Logan's still here. Have you been kind of forgetting that Wolverine and Lockheed are just like kind of hanging out in the background? They don't they don't do very much. No, and the thing is that Wolverine isn't even made a big deal of in you know he's not in the title. He's not on all the covers he's why is he here i'm not entirely certain i think larry hama just likes wolverine and to be fair i do like larry hama liking wolverine and wolverine is i understand wolverine is relatively popular so i've heard so i've heard never seen any evidence of it though <laughs> well he doesn't factor into this big final conflict very directly because it's Kitty who challenges Ogun to a duel on the astral plane for Rigby's life. And Logan's worried about this, which frankly seems like the correct response because Kitty is good at a lot of things, but like astral duels tend not to be one of those things. Mm, Kitty basically sees Logan as a babysitter at this point because she just hands Lockheed off to him. Uh, Lockheed, someone else who people may or may not remember is actually present in this series, having done absolutely nothing whatsoever in the entire three issues. Yep. So off to the astral plane they go, which in this case is a realm of green pieces of paper and hovering bleeding orange and pink spheres. 
the astral plane is always interesting. It's, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, Warlock, where you can really tell a lot about an artist's style, about how they interpret something that's so visually ambiguous. Um, this artist here, I don't know, does an okay job. Like, it certainly doesn't look like a real place, but this is no just, like, season finale of Legion or any given Doctor Strange scene drawn by Ditko. It's just sort of like a weird place. It's like a strangely decorated prom. Yeah, and it also looks really small. Like, it looks like a really close quarters astral plane. Everything is just kind of hanging around. Like, if they were to straighten up, they would bang their heads on all these slimy beach balls that are hanging around. The entirety of the astral plane looks like it's probably about 10 feet by 10 feet. Maybe they're having an astral plane cage match, and uh, there's actually a lot more outside and various spectators, and this is just kind of where they're crammed in. After this, uh, Psychic Peter Parker and Psychic That One Wrestler Guy are going to have a match. <laughs> yeah, but Ogun and Kitty are having this set to with Psychic Swords in there, and... You know, it's not a video game, he reminds her, and it's, you can die, if you die in the game, you die in real life and all that. She agrees with the Clermontism being trotted out, no quarter asked for and none given. A great Clermontism that I actually, I looked this up to see where he'd started using it, because I thought like, it's so linked with, I really remember it in the, the, uh, the Wolverine miniseries, where you've uh-huh. got that fantastic fight scene. But actually, apparently... The first couple of times he used it weren't even in anything X-Men related. He used it first in an issue of Ms. Marvel and then in an issue of Marvel Team-Up before he uses it in anything X-Book related, which is cool, but it's kind of strange because it's so inextricably linked as like one of the things you think of as, as a clear Monty phrase. It's like, you know, the focus totality of my psychic powers or whatever, you know. Yeah, interesting to see where these things start. That would be a fun podcast to do right there. Just like do the non-famous Claremont stuff. Like, you know, do those runs of Ms. Marvel or Iron Fist or whatever. Absolutely. Oh, I would love to do like proper look at that Iron Fist stuff with Sabretooth and everything. Where Sabretooth mm-hmm. is just a, an absolute jobber villain for Iron Fist. And there's no indication of any of the greatness that you would go on to. He's just a guy who like takes Iron Fist out onto a glacier and blinds him for a bit. (laughs) Ah, humble beginnings, humble beginnings. Well, Ogun is apparently a terrible possession pilot while he's busy astrally fighting in the land of slimy beach balls, so the ship is just careening about New York City. It almost crashes into the World Trade Center, which is always a weird thing to see in the, the modern era. It's, uh... I don't know, it's kind of fun. Like, the, the sense of chaos as we cut back and forth between the astral duel and the real world is uh, is pretty enjoyable. It's cool. I like how it, you do get scenes of the helicarrier smashing into buildings and things like that. So there is a uh, kind of imminent danger that is being kind of still put across the readers whilst Kitty is having this astral duel. One thing that you get with these kind of astral duels and things like that psychic plane stuff is that it happens in effectively its own little vacuum and there are no outside indicators of what time it is it's very much like going to casino in that respect you know you 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 don't know what the time is there are no windows no clocks anywhere and you could very easily lose your trousers (laughs) <laughs> so Ogun during this fight he, he refers to the computer 
as a binary calculating engine, which it really makes me think he does not have a handle on the tech. He's basically trying to attach his Facebook to an email. And the whole mini pretty much is just an old person calling up their favorite young person to get them to do tech support for them. I love this interpretation, and it works so well for Ogun, because like he's this very intimidating villain. Clearly, he's effective, but you get the impression he kind of doesn't really know what the hell he's doing other than possess helicarrier, question mark, question mark, question mark. Revenge! Exactly. So Logan, as this is all going on, picks up a random missile from the deck of the helicarrier. Jeez, guys, keep better track of your missiles. And brings it to the impregnable computer room doors. You know, the ones they can't open remotely, even if they did have control of the ship. The kitty had to phase through and turn the lock of. He figures, I guess, that high explosives are probably good ghost-busting tools. High explosives make him feel good. (laughs) He says it's 500 pounds of high explosives, right? That is about as powerful as a car bomb. So I went and looked this up. The safe distance to be from this thing when it goes off is a minimum of 320 feet. Like shelter in place distance is up to about 1900 feet and anything beyond 1900 feet is safe evacuation distance. What it makes me think is that he really just does not like Rigby at all, does he? I I guess not. He's like, you know what? My girl Kitty's pretty awesome. You're just some blonde dude who doesn't even get her jokes. So it's time for you to be atomized. (laughs) Oh, sorry, Kitty was an accident. You know, I know that you would instinctively phase so that the explosion didn't hurt you. And, you know, I currently look like a charcoal briquette, but I'll live. Such a shame about poor old Rigby. Uh, anyone seen Lockheed? (laughs) (laughs) So after all of this, uh, Rigby is somehow not atomized, uh, which, I mean, I guess is is probably for the best. Like, he's not an interesting character, but I don't want him to, like, die. Uh, after all of this, the off switch, it doesn't work. It's been disabled by Ogun. So Logan does what Logan does and just slashes the crap out of everything in sight. And Rigby, AI and computer expert that he is, just sort of agrees like, oh, yep, yep, this is the way. This is the way to disable some computers. And I guess you slash enough, then sure, that's the way to disable literally anything. Yeah, I mean, if he really wanted to stop his computer from working, then... From my own experience, probably the best thing to do would be to spill a Coke on it. Yep, that that would do it. That would do it. And then what you have to do is just sort of panic briefly and uh, throw your hands up and say, why me after the day I've had? It's just, it's just a ritual to it. Yeah, exactly. Just like if your helicarrier has been doused in liquids, it probably like you need to put it in rice uh, to try and get all that liquid out of it again. And then it'll be fine. Yeah, just a really, really big bag of rice. So Logan runs for the manual shutoff that Kitty went for earlier. And while that's going on, the duel starts to wrap up. And how do we describe slash attempts to understand this? This part, this part's weird. Yeah, I mean, she gives a big speech, which is what you would expect for this kind of phase of the last issue of the mini series she needs to rally to be able to defeat the villain and she talks about how the dead don't learn anymore but she is alive and she does learn and yeah she sort of psychically whammies ogun with just the power 
of life itself? Like, she describes it, kind of. The intrinsic power of life can always defeat death, since death is nothing but the absence of life. I mean, I, I, I suppose. I, I suppose that's kind of true. But what's up with then the psychic visible astral blast you send out of your forehead directly into Ogun? You know, the astral plane's a metaphor. I, I guess I'm going to be fine with it. Like, I was just praising that one season finale of Legion, so okay, but it, it's just so strange and so not a Kitty Pride kind of thing to do. Like, she is not a psychic character, you know? Yeah, she appears to have convinced Ogun that she does actually have some kind of psychic power, though, because he reacts in exactly the way that she would have hoped that he would react. Ah! The pupil has surpassed the master! But I still have control of the helicarrier, and I will crash it into the Statue of Liberty! Unless you finish what you have begun and send me howling into oblivion! Sensational. Absolutely. Like, can she fight Ogun in every issue? That would be great. Just, like, have him continually hang around her. Uh, maybe even just as a ghost that only she can see and he can just declaim at her. Oh, man. Like, I wouldn't even be mad at that. Like, if I just had my my very own villain to just be incredibly dramatic all the time about literally everything, like, that would really add to the day. <laughs> yeah. As long as they were completely powerless to actually accomplish anything. Like, if Ogun is actually going to be able to get into the computers, oh, actually, that could be what he does. Like, the, the absolute limit of his power is to just, like, he can make her mouse go backwards when she's trying to control it on the screen. He can change all her um, her tabs in her browser, delete all her bookmarks. He's just a really annoying guy with, with uh, computer powers. Just the most minor of malware. He's basically just slightly evil Bonzi buddy. <laughs> There's a reference that only a subset of our listeners will will catch. But Al, you mentioned like the idea of just that kind of annoying, uh, largely powerless villain just acclaiming all the time. That actually reminds me of an underrated comic uh, that Dark Horse publishes called Empowered, um, which does have a character called the Caged Demon Wolf, who is basically that kind of a Dark Lord character, but just stuck in this like containment belt that the heroes uh, stuck him in, and he just hangs out in the main character's apartment and just is super dramatic about everything all the time and can't <laughs> accomplish anything. He's hilarious. I love Empowered. Such a good comic. It's actually getting a new volume for the first time in years very soon. I'm very excited. I did not know that. That's good to know. But Kitty is not up for murdering Ogun. She is doing her very heroic, I will not stoop to your level kind of thing. And that makes Ogun question everything. And, you know, am I right? Am I doing this for the right reasons and so on? And Kitty says, you know, you can always return to the path of the righteous. You were a good man once. You can do it again. Uh, spoiler, he he won't. He's just going to kill a lot more people in the future. And the helicarrier stops just short of Lady Liberty as S.H.I.E.L.D. takes control again. And Kitty and Rigby are cute at each other. And that's the end of our story. It just ends kind of abruptly. Uh, not really a lot of uh, continuity will come from this, but... I don't know. I, I kind of enjoyed it for a, a mostly featherweight miniseries. Interestingly, I read that Larry Hama in an interview said this was the worst series that he ever worked on. I don't know. What do you think? I don't think it's even the worst thing that he's written that we've read in the last month. 
I actually really yeah, enjoyed yeah. this. It's, it's, it is frothy. It is totally disposable, but it is fun. And sometimes that, particularly in this kind of era of the X-Books when everybody is dealing with, you know, trials of Gambit and legacy viruses and everyone's very dramatic and sad all the time, this kind of fluff is really welcome from time to time. It works as a proper palate cleanser. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just want to fight a ninja ghost on a floating aircraft carrier and talk funny all the time. It's great. Exactly. What's also great are our listeners, and they've got questions. Devin Tui emailed us to ask, Has there ever been any clarification as to which psi powers are visible or not? I know the Phoenix Flare is, whereas I've assumed Jean Grace and Professor X's hot pink telekinesis and telepathy and Karma's halo aren't. Mainly, I'm wondering if non-size can see Psylocke's psychic knife, or later, more complex blades, or Quentin Quire's guns, etc., or is it just the reader and other psychics? I think we probably need to distinguish here between the different types of psychic effect. Because you'll have the, on one hand, this kind of spider sense style things where the reader is being shown a visual indicator of a mental process that's happening where we're not perhaps supposed to literally take that as a visible physical manifestation but then at the same time you'd also have things like psylocke's knife where you know, someone is getting stabbed through the brain with something and i would tend to come down on the side of we can't see the lilac butterfly in front of her face but we can see the massive ragged edge blade if only because if we couldn't do that then she would be like making a stabbing motion and stopping her hand like a few inches away from somebody's head, it'd be like watching WWE. Like she's she's <laughs> pretending to punch. She's just like keeps slapping her thigh to make the noise as she puts the, her hand towards somebody's head. Now you, you have to be able to see the, the knife in those sorts of uh, circumstances. Yeah, it would kind of be ridiculous otherwise. It would be like somebody going pew pew with finger guns and then people just falling the hell over, which I guess would be its own kind of intimidating to be fair. So I was looking for like like evidence in the comics, and it's kind of hard to find. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but but there have been a lot of X-Men comics, and I, I couldn't read them all. Um, but I did find that in, I think, the later Claremont Davis run of Uncanny X-Men, like in the early 2000s-ish, um, we would sometimes see Psylocke's psychic knife and her psychic katana that she could do later, like illuminating the objects around them with with their glow, which would imply that they're visible, that there's a physicality to them. The thing is, though, that's after Psylocke also got telekinesis, in addition to her telepathy. That happens during that gap of time where she and Jean, like, swapped and merged powers a little bit. So maybe that's related? Maybe telekinetic stuff does have more of a visible physical presence than telepathic stuff? And that brings us, of course, to Quentin, which, Devin, you mentioned. Um, He is an arrogant jerk who would absolutely want others to see his psychic shotgun. I feel like he'd be very proud of that. So even if it's not inherently visible, uh, he's probably at least like projecting the image of it into the minds of everybody around. But he also has some telekinesis, so I don't know. I guess I always figured like psi powers are visible when they're pa- really powerful or really concentrated or really nearby. Like uh, when when those are the case enough that non-psychics can sense them. Maybe, as usual, the answer is it depends on who's writing, of course. Yeah, and I think that there is that aspect of pure psychic powers versus the more telekinetic or physical powers i think you're right there is that kind of a demarcation line to be drawn there where if you are holding a psychic shotgun or whatever then 
yeah, probably people can see that. Otherwise, you look really weird. Um, whereas if you're just kind of you know, touch the side of your forehead and do a bit of to me, my X-Men, probably people can't see all the little lines zigzagging out of your head. Although it'd be pretty cool if they could. I would just do psychic stuff all the time just to have weird little squigglies around. <laughs> Meanwhile, Zachariah Deering asks on Twitter, you're asked to write a pitch for a live action X-Men TV series for Disney+. Plus. The only restriction that they give you is that it has to be the main team not X-Factor, New Mutants, etc. Who would be on the main lineup and which era would you base it on? Well, that is a good question. Yeah, I, I know our go-to answer on the show has often been like X-Factor as kind of a workplace sitcom. But if we're talking the X-Men in particular, I'm going to say the Outback era after Fall of the Mutants. Uh, not just because it's my favorite era, but I think it would work. Um, it's pretty isolated, like in terms of geography, of course, but also in terms of continuity. And that means you could focus on the character relationships and sort of tease out the nature of the larger world, the larger plot, as Gateway sent the team out on, like, teleportation away missions. You have a solid recurring threat in the form of the Reavers, who are better villains than most people remember them being. Um, you have the background B-plot of Madeline Pryor gradually losing her mind, uh, which would set things up nicely for a season two or three if they did want to do more of a wider world Inferno thing. Um, and you just have a hell of a cast. Like, you have some traditional X-Men, Storm, Wolverine, Colossus, Rogue. You also have some lesser-known X-Men, Havoc, Dazzler, Psylocke and her Princess Era, Longshot. Great soap opera relationships between all of them. Like, all of those characters had one-on-one -on -one relationships that were that were unique. So, uh, yes, I would say that. What about you, Al? I think I would probably avoid basing it on any specific era, mostly because... I would want to avoid people on the internet getting annoyed with me that it wasn't sufficiently closely following the relevant stories. Um, <laughs> but I, I would want to do something that was quite sort of ur X-Men. You know, it would be a small team, probably school-based. I think if you're going to do it on Disney+, Plus, you, you want to be having the mutants as a relatively unknown quantity. And a lineup would be probably something like Scott and Jean, Bobby, Aurora, Hank, Emma... Um, maybe throw in a wild card there like Karima or somebody like that, you know. And you would have characters like Professor X, Banshee, and Forge as your teaching staff. Effectively, it would be you know, X-Men meets Riverdale or Wednesday or something like that, but with equally bananas out there plots as the kinds of things that they do on Riverdale. I love it. It's like a, a weirder, slightly more grown-up version of X-Men Evolution, which, yes, that is something I want to exist in the world. Yeah, and X-Men Evolution had a goth version of Rogue, and goth version of Rogue would fit in very well if you're doing Wednesday as X-Men or X-Men as Wednesday. Oh, perfect. Disney, make it happen. I'm, actually, I hope you're not listening to this podcast, Disney. Your, your lawyers are scary. But uh, if you are, and if you're not being scary, make it happen. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and Edinburgh, Scotland, and is produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com 
And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform because it really helps. Next week, we're heading to Al's side of the pond. For a trip with the X-Men into the wild world of Marvel UK in the company of Death's Head 2. Death's Head 2.